join me in prayer. Our Lord, as we open up your scriptures, the sword of the Spirit, Lord, I pray that you will uh, build up your church through your word. I pray that we grow in our knowledge of uh, your salvation, in the knowledge of, of you. I pray that we will uh, grow in our love for the gospel and grow in our humility, knowing that, Lord, it is only by you and your strength that we uh, live this life. I pray for those who are here this morning that um, have yet to hear the gospel, who do not know Jesus, Lord. I pray that you will work in them through your proclaimed word and open up their eyes that they may be saved. I pray all this in the finished work of Christ. Amen. So about five years ago, I went on a trip to the Middle East with my friend and and colleague who was teaching me the Arabic language at the time. While I was in Palestine, my my friend, colleague, and and leader of the trip did a cruel, cruel thing. At the time, I was in the early learning stages of the Arabic language, and of course, we're in a place where there is no English spoken. So I'm trying my best to communicate with others. It was very difficult, but at all times I had my friend, the fluent Arabic speaker, with me to help with translating. One night we all go to a park and several of us are are sitting down. Now my friend is nowhere to be seen. He's going off somewhere. Some some other folks. So I'm left there with my limited Arabic language uh, learning and trying to, to communicate as best as I can. I know at this time, I know basic greetings and some uh, conversational phrases. But then they start asking questions about Christianity, about Jesus, uh, about the Bible. And they are all Muslim, and many of them had, had never had any interactions with Christians. And I cannot communicate with them. I'm trying my best. I'm, I'm doing my best with the limited grasp on the language. And I was getting frustrated, trying not to be visibly frustrated, but frustrated with myself. I wanted to be able to answer their questions and tell them, talk to them about Jesus, give them answers to their questions about Jesus, give them answers to their questions about the Bible. But I couldn't. My friend was just so cruel to leave me by myself. And I asked him later, well, why did he do that? Why did he just leave me high and dry there? Well, it was to teach me a lesson. Well, when you're in a helpless state, not only does it motivate you to learn the language, but ultimately you realize your utter dependence on a sovereign God. Utter dependence upon His sovereignty. I trust that He can do a mighty work with your limited ability. Even if we speak ourselves to English speakers, our message as Christians is nonsense to those who don't know God. Even if you articulated the gospel message as logical and as profound as you could, with all the airtight argumentation and proofs, it will still not go through unless the Spirit of God draws them. All I have to say is that we're unable unable to break through stubborn hearts and Satan's grasp by our own strength. 
but it's only in the strength of the Lord. Satan himself, is, he's a defeated and bounded foe, but he's not totally vanquished yet. The world is under Satan's grasp, and he is not going down easy. And so we as a church are in a, a mighty battle, a battle which we are utterly hopeless to win of ourselves, but one in which the Lord Jesus has already won through his resurrection and in which he continues to work through us to the final completion. So as we close the letter of Ephesians this morning, we'll see that this is essentially what Paul is getting at here, what he's communicating to us in this final charge of our own helplessness and God's strength for us in the battle. The full armor of God, the panoply of God, as he saw in the little footnote in the, in the, uh, one of the hymns that we've sang this morning. So please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 24. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can turn to page 979 in the, uh, the Pew Bible in front of you. But in this passage, we will see the, the spiritual enemies of the fight, the spiritual equipment for the fight, and then we'll see how we appropriate this armor that Christ himself has given us. But first, the, the spiritual enemies. Look at verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Okay, we'll stop there. The apostle punctuates this letter with a final charge to the church. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Notice those three words. Seems repetitive. Strong, strength, might. The command is to be strong, but notice the source. It's not you. You and I are weak and helpless, but the strength and might is from God and God alone. And notice the second command here. Put on the full armor, the whole armor, the panoply of God. Okay, we see how God's strength is applied. He has given his church equipment, as we will see in this next section. He has not left us naked and ill-equipped. But why do we need to be strong in the Lord? Why do we need to be equipped as if we are in a battle? Well, again, because we are weak and we are in a battle. Look at the second clause of verse 20. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan is a powerful foe who can and will destroy us if it weren't for the restraining grace of God, if it weren't for the eternal plan of God, of which we saw in Ephesians 1. Satan is a, a bounded foe. He has a loose leash, but he has a leash indeed. However, again, contrary to what you hear probably on TV, you yourself have no power over him. You don't. We don't. But God does. 
But he may be a mighty and ferocious beast, but he is a beast on God's leash. But at the same time, it's a warning for us as well that his schemes are so deceptive that often we don't know that we're entrapped in them until it's too late. But look at verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's election year. So you mean to tell me the Democrats are not the enemies? The the Republicans are not the enemies? The terrorists are not our enemies? No, not ultimately. No, they're not. Look here. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against any human being. Because we have a much more powerful foe. And listen, no human devices can withstand his assaults. No protests, no screaming, no outrage, no boycotting, no mouthing off on social media will do anything against these enemies. Sinful human beings are not our enemies ultimately. Which is an interesting statement for Paul who was constantly harassed by people, flesh and blood. So how, how are we to... How how does this change the way we're to look at people, to look at flesh and blood who are walking in wickedness? First of all, with with pity. Just like Paul said earlier in this letter, in describing all of us before we knew Jesus, we all were spiritually dead and under the rule of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Only the message of the gospel can break through hearts and wills that are under the power and authority of Satan. So our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of the present dark age. And by the way, the, the dark age is not new. It's not, oh, we, I think we are in the dark age now. Well, no, we've been in the dark age since the fall of Adam and Eve. But since Christ came, he has inaugurated a kingdom that awaits its consummation. And until that consummation, the enemies try to triumph over Christ. But you notice what is translated, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now just a a side note here, he's not referring to the abode of God where Christ is seated, the highest heavenly, where the highest heavenly hosts are. The heavens or the heavenly places can refer to other spiritual realms, lower immaterial realms, things not seen with our eyes of which uh, authorities and powers of of spiritual beings lower heavenly places. So that's likely what he's referring to here. But going back to the church, this spiritual, going fighting this spiritual battle against a spiritual entity, which is the church. The church is a spiritual institution. It's not brick and mortar. We are a people united to Christ and to each other by his gospel through the Holy Spirit. And Satan hates God and he hates the church. Now his, again, his defeat was in Christ's death and resurrection and his final vanquishment will be when Christ comes again and just does away with him with one word. But until then, Christ is sanctifying his church, going back to Ephesians 5, he's sanctifying his bride through the Holy Spirit and will bring her, will bring her, not might, will bring her to final glory, of which, going back to Ephesians 1, she has been predestined for. 
the devil and his partners will do everything to hinder or delay this determined end. So we are headed for a destiny, but have stumbling blocks along the way. It's important our enemies are not stupid. They are a lot smarter than you and me. Not all-knowing, not omniscient, but smarter. And all those who are not in Christ are under the devil's lordship, as you may recall from Ephesians 2. So again, we must remember that. No human being is my ultimate enemy. No earthly institution is our ultimate enemy. We can't see our enemies. And that's what makes them so dangerous and so deceptive. We often fall for the decoys when the real thing is sneaking past us. We look at what we think is there rather than what the Word of God actually says. So how are we to see people in the midst of this battle? Well, many of you have probably heard of of Corey Ten Boom. She was just an average, unmarried Dutch watchmaker working in her father's business in the early to to mid-20th century. Then, all of a sudden, in the midst of a German invasion of Holland during World War II, unintentionally, she became leader of, the, of Holland's secret hiding, of, hiding ring of the Jews. Her and her family were devout Christians, uh, Dutch Reformed Christians there in Holland who cared greatly for all people, had compassion on all people, especially the Jewish people. But while they were hiding, these desperate folks who had been on run, from, on run from the Germans, she and her family were caught by the Nazi authorities and sent to prison and then on to a concentration camp. Now, Corey's sister, if you know the story, Corey's sister was really the spiritual example during this imprisonment. Corey would get so frustrated, and understandably so, she would get so angry at the soldiers who would often beat them or mock them and, and rule them around mercilessly. And Corey, again, the reason why she was in prison, she had compassion on those who were, who were suffering, wanted to help them, but she had an almost hatred toward her tormentors. But Betsy was different. Betsy was strange. She would pray for the people Corey was angry at. Betsy would pray that they, the, the Nazi guards, could lo- learn to love just as they had learned to hate. That they would come to faith in the risen Savior. And over and over, she told Corey that one day, when they would be freed, they would try to help these people that had mistreated them. As they had helped the Jews, they wanted to help these enemies. But Betsy didn't see this happen. Betsy ended up dying in the concentration camp right before Corey and a few others were released. But Corey kept the memory of Betsy in her prayer life and recorded it in her book, The Hiding Place. Betsy knew that the, the soldiers, the guards, weren't her enemy. She knew they had been entrapped by the enemy. Therefore, her only weapons against the true enemy were her prayers to that strong and sovereign Lord that he would change hearts. One day, as Corey tells the story, years and years later, she happened to meet one of those guards. One of those guards that was so merciless merciless to them. One of those guards which Corey hated. 
One of those gardens in which Betsy had been praying for while being, while starving to death. Well, this guard told her years, a few years later after World War II that he had come to know the Lord Jesus and that the Lord had changed his life. All those prayers years and years before by her sister, strange prayers, they were answered. Flesh and blood are not our enemies. They are entrapped by our true enemies. Our battleground is not the picket sign or the boycott, but on our knees and in the Word. We have a mighty enemy that hates our guts. So all of our carnal weapons we can think of that don't happen to be in the Bible are no match for him. But do you see, do you see the people of the world, the flesh and blood as your enemy, or do you see them as those entrapped by Satan's snare? And if the latter, if it's the latter, then you know that in and of yourself, you can do nothing to take them out of Satan's hand. Only the one who has defeated Satan, Jesus, can strip people and take them out of Satan's hand. And if that's the case, your dependence is on Christ alone through prayer and through his word and through his gospel. We pray because we know that we are not able, but he is able. We speak his word, not our words, but his word, because his word and his word alone breaks through the most calloused heart that is following another master's bidding. And so, also with this, God has given us weapons of warfare. So our fight is not only, not alone, but we have him and also his gifts. That leads us to this next section, the spiritual equipment. Look at verses 14 through 24. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know that I am how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love and corruptible. Okay. So here, Paul repeats the command for the church to put on or take up the whole armor of God. Why? Well, again, he, he repeats, so that we as a church, again, we as a church, withstand the evil schemes of Satan. Okay, well, what does the full armor of God look like? How has he equipped us for the battle? Well, you notice what is not there. No incantations, no incense, no demon repulsion strategies, or praying certain prayers for over territorial spirits. None of that. 
It's not, oh, we're getting the right people in government. No. What does the sufficient word of God say? It's actually quite simple. It's relying on what is given to us in Christ. Look again at verse 14 and 15. He commands us to stand. Now, how do we stand? By fastening the the belt of truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Go back to Isaiah 11, that same language. And putting on the readiness given by the gospel. He gives us these mental pictures of a group of soldiers with their armor. Of course, our armor is a spiritual armor, armor much stronger than bronze and iron. The belt of truth. Now, if you remember Pilate's question uh, of response to Jesus, you remember Pilate asks him, what is truth? And then he walks off. But Jesus doesn't answer. Or does he? The fact of the matter is Pilate was staring right at the truth. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything that comes from Jesus' mouth is the truth because he is the truth. He gave his prophets and apostles the truth, and that's what we stand on, the scriptures. The words of the apostles and the prophets are the words of Christ for us, sufficient for us. The Bible is the testimony of Christ. All of it is about him and from him. And we stand on Christ's work and his word. We we say that, but do we truly believe it? Do we truly apply it or come up with our own schemes to fight this battle? Because we stand on the truth against the father of lies. The breastplate of righteousness. Now we have been declared righteous by God because of Christ's shed blood that we have appropriated for ourselves through faith. Not of good works, but from faith, Ephesians 2. And as we walk in faith, we walk in practical righteousness. We walk in good works, holy lives, with the law of God as our guide. We stand on the ground of holy living. We, we don't live like the rest of the world does. We walk in Christ's ways as he walked, 1 John. We walk in the righteousness that Christ has given us, declared in us, and given us uh, the Holy Spirit to help us to walk in righteousness in the battle against the king of unrighteousness. Again, let's pay attention to the prescribed means here of which we battle. The belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, and then the readiness given by the gospel. We have a message for the world. We only have one message for the world. And all of us at any time of the day should be ready with this message. What is this message? The gospel. The good news. The gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? That God is our creator and sustainer and creator of all things good. He is good. He is holy and judge of all mankind. He is good and holy. Yet we have sinned and brought stain to the whole cosmos. 
We are guilty before this good God. But this God, out of his abundant love, sent his Son, who is the same being as the Father, to become man and dwell on this earth. He lived a righteous life and submitted his life to death on a cross as a payment for our sin. And he rose triumphantly from the grave, conquering Satan, defeating him, purchasing eternal life for us, purchasing our resurrected life with him. And he rose from that grave and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, establishing his kingdom and will come one day to finalize this kingdom. And we'll judge the whole world, including Satan and his minions. Now maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've heard this message. If so, I want to invite you to come to faith in Christ, to repent of your sin and trust in him. Say, God, you are right, I am wrong. I trust in Christ's finished work, what he has done on the cross for me to save me. And what God does, he changes your heart to desire him to forsake sin, to forsake the schemes of the devil, to, to pursue him. So trust in Christ, what he has done on the cross for your sins, turning from self to him, by calling on him today. Now, brothers and sisters, this right here is the gospel message of which the church has been entrusted with to share to the world. This entrusted message of which explodes the kingdom of Satan. Our armor is the truth of Christ, his righteousness, and his gospel. There's also a few more tools. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, in every situation, put on these additional pieces of armor, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The shield of faith. This is the first one that mentions its function. What does faith do? It extinguishes, looks at, look at this, the flaming arrows of the mighty bow of Satan. Unbelief, which all of us struggle with from time to time, exposes us to all types of harm from the enemy. Doubts of the sovereignty of God, of his goodness, of his promises, brings about all types of danger for our lives. Satan attacks our faith, but Christ is our faith. The helmet of salvation. So we got the, uh, the shield of faith, now we have the helmet of salvation. The reverse of unbelief is gospel assurance. We ought to know our future is secure, Ephesians 1, our future is secure because of what Christ has done in the past. My assurance of salvation is not from anything I did or any event of my life or sentimental feelings. I base my, we base our assurance of what Christ objectively did on the cross. He is my salvation and he is my protection. When those doubts of, uh, of, of assurance, whether I'm saved or not, uh, go to the cross of Christ. I plead, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin. That is the objective uh, assurance that I have. Nothing else. When Satan attacks our assurance, Christ's death and resurrection is our assurance. And finally, the, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. 
the only weapon here that is a weapon of attack. All the rest are defense weapons. This one is an offensive weapon. I remember several years ago, I, th- I was at, a, I think, a, a pastor's meeting, and someone had, had left the room and came back. He, he said, oh, I, I forgot my sword. And I was thinking, I was like, I forgot my sword. What is he talking about? And then I realized, it took me a few seconds later, I, oh, I realized what you did there. Uh, yeah, the Bible. He got his Bible out. But the Word of God is the voice of the Spirit. You hear me? The Word of the Lord is the voice of the Spirit. The Bible is the voice of the Spirit. You want to hear God? Read the Bible. You want to hear God speak to you audibly? Read the Bible out loud. Hear the Word of God read, sung, proclaimed when the church gathers. The Spirit of God speaks and works through the book He wrote the Bible. When we say the Scriptures are sufficient, we say that every Sunday when we're about to read the sufficient Word of God. When we say that it's sufficient, this is what we mean. All I need to know about God, the gospel, and to walk the Christian life is sufficiently contained in these 66 books. It doesn't tell me all there is to know, but all I need to know to walk the Christian life. No need for another prophet or prophetic utterance or extra voice, or whatever. God has given us all that we need. Christ has given us all we need to live with Him and in Him. How did Adam fail in the garden when tempted by the devil? But not appropriating the Word of God, not believing the voice of the Lord, but the voice of the serpent. And how the second Adam the Lord Jesus prevail in the wilderness against the devil's temptation by appropriating the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And he adds this last clause in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And this clause is descriptive of, of taking the helmet of salvation, the Word of God. It describes the activity that should be going on with it. We express our assurance in prayer. We intake the Word of God with prayer. So what does it mean in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit? Well, what does he just say that's in his prior about the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. Praying in the Spirit is prayer that is drenched in the Word of God. Praying in accordance with the revealed will of God. That's what praying in the Spirit means. It means in accordance with His revealed will. Prayers drawn from the Psalms. Prayers drawn from the prayers of the New Testament letters and the Lord's Prayer. Prayers that have requests that are in line with what God has commanded us to request. The church of God is to be a scripturally praying people who are living under the word of God and in the assurance of their salvation. So with that said, Paul closes with a final command to keep alert, aware with patient endurance, knowing that the battle is long. And as, as, as long as Christ tarries and, and, and it's for our whole lives to, in this present age looking forward to the age to come, which the battle is completely over. So in light of that, as we see in verse 18, it includes enduring, uh, includes praying for all the churches in the world, for all the saints, 
knowing that they are going through the same intense battle that we are. And by the way, brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in Christ locally and all over the world are fighting the same battle with us. So you may ask, why do we pray for other sister churches every Sunday? Why do we pray for our missionaries in our pastoral prayer? It's because we desire the advancement of the gospel and know that only God can plow away these stumbling blocks. And they do encounter many stumbling blocks, as we do as well, but they do all over. And we pray for them as they do pray for us. We're not alone. We're not an island here. We, we pray for the church abroad, locally, and in, in ends of the earth. And then Paul adds a request for prayer for himself as well. But notice, <clears throat> notice what he asks for. He doesn't ask for physical deliverance from prison. And in the writing of this letter, he talks about him being an ambassador in chains. He doesn't ask for good health. Well, the man had faced all kinds of beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, health issues, eye issues, etc., etc. Now, what does he pray? What does he ask for prayer for? That he might have the right words to say and the boldness in saying it as a witness to the gospel and declaring the gospel. Notice not only what is not there, but notice what is there. The means by which, the sufficient means for fighting this battle. When the church centers its prayer life on the gospel and our witness to the gospel, that right there is a healthy church. The gospel message to the world is our battle cry, of which, at which, the most mighty missiles are aimed. Anything that hinders the advance of the gospel, you know who's behind it. But look again at verses 21 through 22. Paul sends his final greetings by discussing a man whom he has been sending for their encouragement and also for his. And he closes with a blessing of peace, grace, love, and faith, all from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, notice that language there. There's a love that the church should have for one another of individual members but also a love churches should have for other churches because we are working together for the advancement of the kingdom of God. It's not just me in the battle. It's not just us in the battle, but it's all of us in this battle together, together. And I say that because oftentimes when we uh, look at this passage, we tend to individualize, put on the full armor of God. It's a memory verse, you know, a memory passage growing up as kids. Put on the full armor of God and individualize it when in actuality it's given to the church. Yes, we do imply it individually, but specifically it's more generalized to the church together. We do this together. But also important too, as we get to the close of this letter, it kind of points us back to the beginning. All these accoutrements we have, we have in Christ. Well, how so? We look back at the beginning of this letter. You can flip over a few pages to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Look at verses 3 through 14. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained the inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of of his glory. So you have that at the beginning, that beginning prayer, that beginning greeting. Then Paul, at the end of this letter, shows how we, in the intermediate time between Christ's two advents, we appropriate these gifts that are all ours in Christ, even from the, the, the earliest convert to the most mature Christian. All of us have this together. We have all that we need in Christ. And then then to end, how do we appropriate these gifts in the midst of this battle? On the way to our destination, of which we are going. There's no change in that fact. Even though Satan thinks, and the dominions think that they can hinder this in some way, they're not. But God has equipped us for this battle. We have nothing missing. God has given us several gifts, weapons of defense against our true enemy. So when churches start politicking, they're in a losing battle. When churches start just become social clubs, they are walking dead. But when we walk in faith in the risen Christ, assured of our salvation, spreading the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and by holding on to the sword of the Spirit, the church will stand and will prevail. He's not left us in the dark. He's given us the appropriate means, the sufficient means for the battle. So we see in this final section of Paul's letter in Ephesians that we, the church, must put on the full armor of God in the battle against the spiritual forces as we journey to our destined end. As we remember from the previous passages of Ephesians, we, the church, have a predetermined destiny. On the way to that destiny, however, we have spiritual enemies looking to thwart this plan. We've been given armor along the way, and I praise God for that. The the armor is graciously given to the church, and each of us, collectively and individually, must appropriate these gifts. Again, this is not a command given merely to an individual believer, but to us as a church. We do this together. We do this together against a defeated enemy. His doom is sure. We are not fighting for victory, but fighting from victory. So when those times of despair, remember that. We're already victorious in Christ. 
And we battle against our own temptations, whether that be anger issues, sexual lust, pride, times of despair, a whole list. And all of us are bombarded with these various temptations when we are weak. And we cannot, we cannot do this battle alone. We need Christ's strength. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ at the same time as part of a a covenant community, the church. We as Providence Baptist Church need relationships with other gospel churches in the area. You yourselves need relationships with strong believers who can bear and cover and build up your burden, build you up in your burdens. You cannot do it alone. Our battle is also not against those on the outside. That is, those who are non-Christians or those who express disdain for Christians or Christianity. Your true weapons are your prayers for them. Your true weapons are your holy life in front of them. Your true weapons are your sharing your faith, the truth of the gospel, and love with them. And in the midst of this, the Lord Jesus promised us following him would be difficult. He never did lie to us. There's no bait and switch. You will carry and bear a bear cross in following him. But he's also promised he would be with us always. Even in the midst of agonizing temptation, he is there. Even in the midst of the pain of suffering, he is there. Even as you experience ridicule and rejection, he is there. And now, by the way, he experienced all of them as well. He bled and died for us. He prays for us and will one day raise us up to be with him forever. My favorite hymn, one of my favorite hymns, maybe my favorite hymn of all time, of which we're about to sing, is uh, Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, it's based off Psalm 46, but I think this stanza here that I'm about to read is quite relevant to this passage. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our gospel. Jesus is our faith. Jesus is our salvation. And Jesus is the very word of God. Put on Christ. He himself is the full armor of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you. Lord Jesus, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we praise you. Our triune God, who you've planned our redemption from before the ages. You've planned even in the midst of this uh, salvation that we would do battle, Lord. We know the end. And you've ordained the means to the end. By your decree, Lord, these things are happening to us, for us, that you may get all the glory. Lord, when tempted to despair, let us remember we are victorious in Christ. When tempted to be prideful, Lord, humble us, humiliate us, that we may never walk the Christian life without our humble prayer, knowing that we come with no sufficiency in and of ourselves. And all those in Christ, Lord, are in Christ to the praise and glory of God the Father. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.